0: Father God, we turn to your Word now. We pray that we might understand it rightly and apply it diligently to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So there are times in life where, and we're all used to this, that you're just left hanging, and though it's no fun, it surely makes life interesting. So you ask your girlfriend to marry you, and she says she wants to think about it for a while, you're left hanging. Or how about if you're a Cleveland Browns fan back in the 1980s? It's like, man, you know, they, they they never won any kind of championship five years in a row. They went to the, the playoffs only to lose in the first or second game, and you, you get used to being left hanging as a Cleveland Browns fan. But We've hanged ourselves in the last decade as a Cleveland Browns fan, so we don't even love hanging anymore. Or my favorite is this. How about if you are, are watching television, you're watching one of your favorite sitcoms, and it gets to the end of the half hour or hour, and it says to be continued next episode. And you're like, oh, stink, I gotta wait a week for this thing to, to come back. And, and life is filled with so many examples where you and I are left hanging, waiting anxiously for what's gonna come next, and though it's no fun, it does make life suspenseful. The reason I mention that is because last week we started kind of a two-part series within a series called I Am Chosen, we looked at Romans chapter nine. And i got to tell you, this doesn't happen very often in the Bible, but at the end of chapter 9 of Romans, you are definitely left hanging, and many of us felt that when we were doing our study last week, because Romans 9 presents a thesis, a truth about God, that at one and the same time is both comforting and securing, but also leaves us with a lot of unanswered questions, and it leaves us hanging. So what I want to do is to hang no more, and I'm going to dive right back in today, and we're going to pick up our study, moving now into chapter 10, to try to complete what we started talking about last week. And some of you are saying, well, Jamie, this is my first Sunday here. I missed last week. Thanks a lot. But, but we're going to kind of give you a, a quick preview of what happened last week as well as to catch the rest of us back up. So if you have an outline, this is the review part. I'm just going to give you a very, very brief review of what we talked about last week so we can all get caught up and, and move on this week. And here was my main point last week, and that is that in Jesus Christ... God has chosen you, not vice versa, and it's all about his mercy and plan. That's what Romans 9 teaches us, that if you are a believer here today in Jesus Christ, someone who has clearly become a Christian by placing your faith in Christ, Romans 9 tells you that you are now one of the chosen and that God from eternity past has chosen you to be his child, that even though it seems like you chose him, Romans 9 pulls a fast one and says no God chose you and we noted then that this means all the aspects of your coming to him were of his doing the conviction of your sin the realization of his forgiveness the people who helped you along the way even the faith that you had that seems so much like yours at the time God says I gave you that gift of faith so that you might believe and as if this were not enough we further noted two things Uh, in Romans 9, that it makes clear, first he chose you and it was not based on anything that you did or didn't do. In other words, he didn't choose you because you're some great person or he looked ahead in time and saw that you would have faith or that you'd be this or not be that. No, it kind of kicks all those stilts out from under us and says he chose you not based on anything you did or didn't do. It didn't have anything to do with that. So why did he choose you? This is the second thing and the last thing we noted last week, and that is that Romans 9 tells us he chose you simply due to his own mercy and his own plan and purposes. It doesn't tell us any more than that. Simply that his choosing of you is part of his amazing grace and even a part of his plan from all eternity for this world. So Romans 9 best sums it up this way. Look up here on the screen it says for he god says to moses i will have mercy on whom i will have mercy and i will have compassion on whom i have compassion in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory even us whom he has called it's mind-boggling to be sure to think that god and god alone is ultimately the one in charge of our salvation and life and it unquestionably leaves us hanging but with a lot of questions uh, that we have in response to this. even for some people, some objections. And if you remember at the end of last week, I told you that by design, I wanted to leave you hanging. Because I think way too many Christians, when confronted with this idea of God's grace, that really your salvation is about his grace, they quickly move to try to answer the objections, to make sense of this, to try to find some combination of how this fits in with our will, as Troy mentioned. And though we're gonna do that today, I, I gotta tell you, we needed to spend a week, hopefully, just parking in front of this idea that he chose us and let that sink in and let your heart be grateful. No matter how you explain this, no matter how you reconcile this and make sense of it, don't water down or diminish the absolute sovereignty of God in your life, let it sink in. That was my challenge to you, and park in front of it for just a little while. And hopefully you spent some time doing that. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that you have been chosen for his glory, period. Now, I know because I hear things that many of you did try to park in front of this truth this week, but that you also had a lot of discussions trying to make sense of this. Phone lines, Bible studies, email exchanges, family dinner tables have been, have been discussing this week how all of this could be and how it fits in with our own freedom and even our own choice. Theologians have been wrestling with this conundrum for 2,000 years, even longer now. And so it's natural that you and I would wrestle with this. And that's what I want to do here this afternoon. And I'm going to do so in kind of a Socratic message or method. Three questions that I want to ask and answer. You'll see that in your outline in the center of your compass. Three questions that I think get to the heart of what's going on with this issue that might help take some of the edge off of the raw determinism that you felt last week. Three questions that might help us understand God's sovereignty and our choices. And obviously the first and critical question would be this. What about my choice? Is it real? Does it count? In other words, if you have come to believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life, think about it, you've obviously made a decision to do so. You chose to believe and trust in Him. Maybe you prayed a prayer. Maybe you walked an aisle. Maybe you had what John Wesley called that heartwarming experience. Something you did or said or felt that revealed your faith response to the message of the gospel. And the question then that is so obvious in light of 9, the claim that Romans 9 makes about God being in charge of our salvation is this, well then what about my decision and choice? Was it really my choice or was it God forcing my hand? Was it something that I'm actually responsible for or am I just a puppet responding to God like a marionette on on a couple of strings and just doing God's bidding? What about my choice? Is it real? Does it count? And the answer to this question, believe it or not, is relatively simple and straightforward, almost universally agreed upon. By the majority of biblical scholars, and here it is. Yes, you have the ability to choose, and God holds you joyfully and sometimes painfully responsible for your choices. That's the answer, and I've chosen my words very carefully there. Yes, you have the ability to choose, and God holds you joyfully and sometimes painfully responsible for your choices. And so, what I am asserting in this, let me be very clear, that somehow, in the midst of God's free and unhindered choice, human choice and decision is also in play. Your ability to choose, choosing the will that you have, is real. It's not an illusion. And God both declares this in His Word and He honors this in your life. So let me say it very clearly the sovereignty and calling of God in your life and in your salvation, does not negate, nullify, abrogate, take away, nor remove your ability to choose. And to prove so, God holds you responsible for the choices that you make, even the biggest choice of whether to choose or reject his son, Jesus Christ. And though I'm going to try to describe how this can be, In light of God's unhindered sovereignty in just a few minutes, first I want to show you that this is indeed what the Bible teaches. That's our starting place. Our biblical theology must always inform our systematic theology. One of the greatest mistakes that Christians make is they got this nice little tight theological system that we function by. The only problem is it doesn't square with the Bible. And so we always need to start with what the Bible says about reality, then try to understand it systematically in our lives. So let's go to the Bible. Romans chapter 10 is where we are as we make our way through Romans 9 through 10. And so as you're turning to Romans chapter 10, I want to give you an overly simplified outline of Romans 9 through 11. This will be very important for you to understand the logic and flow of these three chapters. You remember from last week that Romans 9 declares that God is sovereign and that he is irresistibly calling some to be a part of his kingdom. That's the insult that we feel, but it's also the comfort that we take. Romans 9 lays out very clearly God's choice for you and for me as followers of Jesus Christ that it was his doing, his calling, his choice. But then interestingly, you turn the page to Romans 10, which we're going to do today, and it talks about our corresponding responsibility to likewise choose and be held responsible for our choices. And then Romans 11 kind of helps us make sense of these two seemingly contradictory truths. But before we get to Romans 11, look with me at what Romans 10 tells us. Look at verses 4 and then verses 9 through 15. It says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And skip down to verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Here it is. For the Scripture says, whoever believes in him... Will not be disappointed, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call upon him they have not believed? And how can they believe if they've not heard? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good news. Now, folks, contained in this passage here is what theologians for 2,000 years now have labeled a universal call to believe and trust in Jesus Christ. You caught it no less than three times. In verses 4 and then 11 and then 13, it calls whoever and everyone to believe and trust in Christ. Do you see that there on the screen? And we know from the context here that this means all humanity. Some try to weasel out of this by saying it's just referring to a subset of humanity. Problem is that doesn't square with the context here. It's talking about all Jews, all Gentiles. That's the context of Romans 9 through 11. So this is talking about the whole world. It's a universal extending of the gospel to everyone, to whoever and all that would respond. So picture a free lemonade stand in the middle of town with a big neon sign saying free lemonade, come all, come everyone. It's a universal call that's extended to all of humanity. And notice with me that in addition to this, the second thing then Romans 10 says is that it's a universal call to make a choice, to make a decision to follow Jesus Christ. Look at verses 9 and 10 again. It says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For the heart is where man believes, resulting in righteousness, and the mouth is where he confesses. Folks, I I don't know any other way to see this. That's describing a choice that you and I make. What's the centerpiece of our choices? What we say, what we believe in our head, what we affirm in our hearts, it's the Bible's way of saying that there's a choice going on here, that choice centers in a human being responding to a universal call. And so I like how Paul Jewett, in his groundbreaking book, Election and Predestination, says it. Look up here in the screen. He says, in the historical reporting of Acts, the book of Acts, of what happened when the apostles preached, the life and death importance of the human choice is presented as being preeminent. One's salvation or condemnation depends on whether one believes or disbelieves the gospel. And if kind of the hammer this home, this is why Romans 10 then goes on to say, and by the way, we all need to present this choice to everybody around us. Preach to them so they may hear and believe and become followers of Jesus Christ as well. And as if this were not enough, there's like a lot of other scriptures that affirm this idea of a universal call to choose. Joshua 24, verse 15, is one of the most popular quoted passages. It says, Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the God your father served in the region beyond the river, or the God of the Amorites, in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will choose to serve the Lord. Let me ask you, why would the Scriptures call people to choose if they couldn't? Why would they call people to an illusion if it was not real? Revelation 22:17, 17, three verses before the end of the entire Bible says this. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Sure sounds like a choice people make to me. So just add it up. It's not complicated. You've got a universal call given to all humanity to make a choice and it's a real and meaningful choice and this might now help explain a couple of passages that again many Calvinists tend to shy away from that talk about the fact that God desires all people then to make this choice have you seen those passages look at second Peter verse three chapter three verse nine it says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. And here it is, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's real. He wants all people to choose. And again, I, I know what some people do with this passage and the corollary one in First Timothy 2.4 that says he desires all people to be saved. They say, well, it doesn't really mean all. It just means all that he has chosen. It's just referring to the elect. The problem is, is that, again, you're reading your systematic theology into your biblical theology at that point. You're along your presuppositions. Guys, I'm with you. I'm a Calvinist. Well, some of you are saying I'm an Arminian. Well, I'm not with you. I'm a Calvinist on this. But I think sometimes one of the dangers of Calvinism is that we tend to read certain scriptures with kind of a reformed bent, and we don't understand that in the original context, they meant all. God desires all to be saved, desires all to come to repentance. Why? Because there's a universal call out there. And so don't try to explain this away. It's a universal call from God calling all people who he desires to be saved to choose and believe. The scriptures clearly affirm that you are called to choose and God holds you joyfully and sometimes painfully responsible for your choices. And so why is this important? Well, for those of you who walked away last week feeling an insult to your will because of the strength of the teaching of Romans 9, maybe now you can see why it's important that you turn the page or that it's important that you come back for part two. And some of you are going, Jamie, it just sounds like you're speaking out of both sides of your mouth. I get to that in a minute. I got teenagers. I speak out of both sides of my mouth all the time. But, but, but I'll explain what I'm doing with this in a minute. But, but let's just note again how prevalent this view that God still calls us to responsible choosing and holds us responsible for it is. Listen to Wayne Grudem, our own Wayne Grudem, who's written the groundbreaking systematic theology, a Calvinist in his own right. Listen to what he says. Look up here on the screen. He says, Scripture nowhere says that we are free in the sense of being outside of God's control, but we are nonetheless free in the greatest sense that any creatures of God could be free. We make willing choices, choices that have real effects. We are aware of no restraints on our will from God when we make decisions. We must insist that we have the power of willing choice, and otherwise we will fall into the error of fatalism or determinism and thus conclude that our choices do not matter or that we can not really make willing choices. So, what about my choice? Is it real? Does it count? Guys, I'm telling you, yes. The Bible affirms this in Romans 10. Now, with that understanding, let's take this further and try to wrestle now with this. When one affirms the truth of Romans 10 and other scriptures that talk about human choice and its validity, while at the same time as we did last week, not shying away at all from God's absolute sovereignty in choosing us whom he who have believed, it opens up a whole other set of problems when you do this. So listen to how William Barclay, a great old commentator, commenting on Romans 9 and 10 kind of sets it up. He says, and I quote, The Bible here sets two things side by side. Everything is of God, but also human choice. We know that God is behind everything, and yet at the same time, we know that we can accept or reject God's offer. And so if you're tracking with me at all, you realize that by affirming the validity of human choice and responsibility that now you got a whole other issue on your hand. And this brings us to the second logical question today. And this is a tougher one to answer, so hang in there with me on this one. And it's the question, well, is this rational? I mean, doesn't this go against the law, uh, laws of logic? In other words, some of you have been rightly thinking, as I've been laying this out, well, Jamie, these are two very seemingly contradictory and opposing things that you're saying here. God is, in completely, charge of, God is completely in charge of my salvation, and yet I make real and meaningful choices, even the kind that he holds me responsible for. You're engaging in a logical bind. See, if you've ever taken a philosophy class, a logical bind is this. A logical bind is when you say my car is in the parking lot south of here right now and my exact car is not in the parking lot in the parking south of here right now. If you say that, that's called a fallacious argument. It's a logical bind. You can't say that. A cannot equal B and not equal B at exactly the same time. And some of you are saying, well, well Jamie, that's kind of what you're doing here. You're engaging in a fallacious argument, a logical bind. And here is my answer. And it's not really mine, as if I came up with it, but the answer that some very smart men and women over the years have come up with. And you're not going to like it, but my answer is this. Yes and no. <laughs> I told you I got teenagers. I'm used to this kind of answer. Yes and no. But what I mean by that is it pushed beyond the limits of our rationality. I would suggest you here that both of these truths... God's unshakable sovereignty, and our responsibility to choose form the paradox of grace. And you're going to want to dial into that word paradox. Listen closely. Webster's dictionary defines a paradox as this. Isn't this interesting? It's defined as a statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense, and yet is perhaps true. That's a paradox something that on the outset, even once you've looked at deeply, seems contradictory or even opposed to common sense, but at the end of the day, it's true. In other words, a paradox is something that our minds cannot comprehend or rationally get around, but then on our best observation and experience, it tends to be true. I mentioned to you earlier that Romans 9 and 10 present two seemingly different truths and that Romans 11 helps us make sense of this. I mentioned to that that earlier so with this in mind look at how romans 11 does this again i don't know if this will work for you or not but this is what the scriptures say look at romans 11 verse 25 and then verses 33 through 36 this is its answer to solving the dilemma before us it says lest you be wise in your own sight i do not want you to be unaware of this mystery brothers A partial hardening, that's the determinism, has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Then skip down to verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Do you catch how Romans 11 suggests that we make sense of Romans 9 and 10? The two opposing things that are presented to us? Let me repeat to you the words that it uses mystery, unsearchable, inscrutable, who knows the mind of the Lord. In other words, if I'm reading this right, what it's telling us here is that we have. When it comes to God's unconditional calling, and yet our declared ability to choose and believe, it's a paradox. It's a mystery that transcends the boundaries of our rationality and logic into the realm of God's unfathomable truth. And so it's telling us that both are true here, sovereignty as well as human responsibility. And more importantly, as we're going to wrap up here in a few minutes, we need to live In the realm of both. We need to to live in the realm of making wise decisions and choices as if our choices matter, but then trusting and resting fully on God's unhindered sovereignty. And even though we can't make sense of this completely in our minds, we have to chalk that up to the fact that it's a mystery, but God's word declares both are true. And what you need to know is that other verses kind of hint that we need to back off this stuff too, that we need to at some point declare that God's ways are higher than our ways. Look at Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, when Israel was wrestling with all the judgments coming from God and why this is and why God would do that and what he's up to. and, 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 And it says this, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Folks, listen. There are some parts of scriptures, thankfully few, that are paradoxical in their teaching. I believe they go higher than our finite thinking. They transcend the realm of human logic and understanding, but you still need to affirm their truth. And when it comes to the issue before us today, experts for hundreds of years now, as they have wrestled with this, have finally admitted it's a paradox that his grace has saved you fully and unconditionally, no bones about it, but you had a choice, a willing choice, a real and meaningful choice, and both are true. Whether you can explain it or not, both are true. And and again, I know how some respond at this point. If you and I are having a cup of coffee, you might be tempted to respond this way right now, as I have in the past. You might be tempted to say, Jamie, that's too easy of an out. You just can't cry mystery when you can't explain something. That's too easy. And in one sense, I'd say, you got me. I mean, in one sense, I would say that I too can't stand lazy Christians who intellectually don't wrestle with issues and whenever they can't explain something, they say, well, it's a mystery. We all know Christians like that. But I would also say, in all fairness, I don't think I'm being that here. I've wrestled with this a lot, so have people for 2,000 years. And yet the reality is is that there are some issues just a few that the Bible affirms that we're not going to completely get and maybe this will help maybe this won't but guess what we're not alone on this issue in other words try explaining the Trinity to somebody have you ever done that I love it when Christians try to explain the Trinity they think they got it all figured out they say well Father Son and Holy Spirit it's like three in one oil I'm like aunt eh, you're a heretic that's not true because you see, it's 100% God, 100%, uh, the Holy Spirit's 100% God, Jesus is 100% God, the Father's 100% God, but there's only one God. So it was like, it's like water. It comes in three different forms, you know, ice and steam and liquid. And I go, eh, heretic, because that's not true either. That's called manifestation theology. It's not just that God is manifest in three forms. No, no, he is in essence, Three distinct persons, but one God. How do you explain that? You don't. At the end of the day, you're going to call it a mystery. Or how about what theologians call the hypostatic union of Christ, the fact that Christ is 100% man and 100% God. Not 50-50, but 100% both. How do you explain that? Or even how do you just explain the providence of God to somebody? You ever tried that, Frank? Like You explain to somebody, how can God be everywhere all the time, listening to every prayer, seeing every human heart, He is one multitasking God, isn't he? I mean, how can God do that? You and I cannot get our heads and hearts around how God can even be providential. And again, what you know is that other disciplines do this as well. You know, if anybody ever says to you, that's an easy out, ask them what they do. My brother's a physicist. He's got his bachelor's in physics, his master's in computer engineering. He understands, to the best of his ability, Einstein's general theory and relativity and and, and quantum mechanics and subatomic physics and all the stuff that I could never understand at all. And if Peter was here today, he would tell you very clearly that when it comes to light functioning as both a wave and a particle, they cannot explain how that can be. For years, they thought that light had to function either as a wave or as a particle, but now they know that it functions as both. And when you ask somebody, school in physics, how can that be? They'll say it's a mystery. But nobody sits there and says, well, that's an easy out. We just go, well, that, that, that's what we understand at this point. So other disciplines do this as well. And this is why I say when it comes to the paradox of grace, human responsibility, God's sovereignty, if you ask me if it's rational, I'll say yes and no. It's rational in the sense that we can understand both truths and that they actually work together and that Scripture affirms both. But if you push me and ask me, how is it rational to affirm both, I'd have to say it's a paradox. This is what D.A. Carson calls compatibilism. He argues that when you take God's unshakable sovereignty and human responsibility, while it's a mystery, at the same time it's not a contradiction because they're both compatible. They're compatible in our experience, and they're compatible as we live them out. So once again, if you're not convinced yet, listen to how our friend Wayne Grudem says it in his systematic theology. He's wrestled with these issues a lot. I like how he says this. It's not up on the screen. Just let this soak in. He says, God causes all things that happen but he does so in such a way that he somehow upholds our ability to make willing, responsible choices, choices that have real and eternal results and for which we are held accountable. He says exactly how God combines his providential control with our willing and significant choices scripture does not explain to us, but rather to deny one aspect or the other simply because we cannot explain how both can be true, we should accept both in an attempt to be faithful to the teaching of all of Scripture. And I think he's spot on. I I think you need to accept the tension and and deal with it. (laughs) And this brings me to the final and last critical question that I want to ask, and that is, what am I to do with this? How, How am I to live this out? And here's my answer to this. Affirm both truths fully and move on in your walk with God. I'm telling you, this is rich stuff. Affirm both truths fully and then move on in your walk with God. Why is this important? Over the last 30 years of being a Christian, 20 plus years of being a pastor, I've noticed two temptations that people have when they deal with this issue. The first temptation, and you all have friends like this, maybe even you, is that when you deal with human responsibility and God's sovereignty is that you get so frustrated, you throw up your hands and you end up saying, I don't want to deal with this. I'm burying my head in, my, in the sand. Don't talk to me about this anymore. That's what some people do. I've done that in the past. I've gotten so sick and fed up, almost nauseated with the, the trying to go so deep in understanding this and, and the roadblocks that you get and the dead ends that I just say, you know what? Just give me the daily bread. I'm moving on. I know that was a cheap shot of the daily bread again, but I like the daily bread. I do. I like the daily bread. And I won't call it what I called it the other day because I do think it's a good devotional. I just think we could do more than that. And so enough said on that. I won't mention it again. (laughs) The other extreme that we go to is that for those who don't bury their head in the sands, you know what we end up doing? And again, I've been on both sides of this one is that we choose one side or the other and we go to an extreme with those. So, so I got friends. I, again, I'm a moderate Calvinist, Calvinist, if that means anything to you. If you don't, who cares? But, but I, I am. And, and yet I have friends. In fact, I told one of my pastor friends this week, I said, I'm going to tell the congregation that you're what I call a Shiite Calvinist. I mean, it's just like, wow, you know, like it was off the charts there. And, and, and you know what I mean by that is that I have some Calvinist friends that, 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 that so strongly emphasize, rightly so, God's choice, but then if you'd all bring up human choice, they err on the side of absolute determinism. There is no such thing as human choice. Human choice doesn't matter. You're dead in your trespasses and you're trespassing sins. A dead man can't make any choices, you know, and then that either God chose you or you didn't, end of story. And I sit there and go, wow, well, now I understand <laughs> why some Calvinists don't evangelize, why some Calvinists tend to deny the fact that our choices are real and meaningful and that they have any effect. I'm just glad that not all Calvinists do that. But you see, then there's the other extreme of the Arminian camp that I mentioned last week. Sorry, Dale. There's the other extreme. And, 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 and this extreme it tries to, to, to say, well, we have total freedom of choice. Jesus came and died on a cross, and when he died, he gave prevenient grace, and that freed up everybody's will, and God looked ahead and saw who would choose him and who wouldn't, and he put a stamp on them, and it's all about freedom of human choice. I sort of go, wow. What exegetical magic you've engaged in. Because... I can't even remotely see that that's what the Bible is saying. Do do you see what's happening here, folks? We we tend to pick one side. We go to an extreme, and, and I think we err in so doing. And so my encouragement to you is don't fall into these traps. Affirm both truths fully and live the mystery. Live the mystery of God's unshakable, unbending control and sovereignty in your life. Jesus says, Not a sparrow falls to the ground outside of the Father's will. Do you guys know what a powerful passage that is? I I guess you got to be from the Midwest to understand the insignificance of a sparrow. Sparrows are to birds what goldfish are to fish. Don't ever forget that. Goldfish are not like wide mouthed bass, you know? They're not like, oh, gee, I caught a goldfish. Who cares? That was Jesus' point. I know some of you are going to write me emails. I like my goldfish. Oh, gosh. Leave me alone. Anyways, (laughs) Jesus' point in this teaching was that sparrows are not like a bald eagle. Sparrows are not like these birds that anybody cares about. Except who? God. That every sparrow that falls to the ground, God cares about. He's numbered every hair on your head. Guys, don't ever, ever diminish his sovereignty. He is in that much control of your life. Somebody came up to me after last week's service. It was a tender moment. We did that Veterans Day thing, and he said, I, I was a veteran 42 years ago. I fought in the war, and every Veterans Day since then, for 42 years, I just, I wake up shaking because of the memories and all the stuff I deal with. And he says, and our five-minute thing in the service usually takes some of the edge off, and I, and I settle down a little bit. He said, but last Sunday, this was this past Sunday, he said, this Sunday, He said it was different because when you laid out God's sovereignty and control and how awesome and big he is, he said, I stopped shaking. He said, it's it's just that powerful to think that he chose me. See, don't ever underestimate that. Don't diminish that. There's great comfort in that. At the same time, while you're doing that, choose each day the things that are right and good. Make wise decisions and choices and live people that use God's sovereignty as an excuse not to choose, I think are making a great error. There's a great Reformed pastor about 100 years ago who taught at Westminster Seminary and then was president of Calvin College in Grand Rapids named R.B. Kuyper. And at one point he was writing on this idea of God's sovereignty and human choice, and he came up with an analogy that many of you might have heard before, but it's gone down, at least in my world, as one of the best analogies on how to live out what we're talking about here today look up here in the screen let me read it to you i love this he says i liken them to two ropes going through two holes in the ceiling and over the pulley above if i wish to support myself by them i must cling to them both if i cling only to the one and not the other i go down He says, I read the many teachings of the Bible regarding God's election, predestination, his chosen, and so on. I read also the many teachings regarding whosoever will may come and urging people to exercise their responsibility as human beings. These seeming contradictions cannot be reconciled by the puny human mind. With childlike faith, I cling to both ropes, fully confident that in eternity, I will see that both strands of truth are, after all, of one piece. So what do you do? Cling to both ropes. And so here's my take-home points for you on Romans 9 through 11. I'm not going to expound upon these at all. Just chew on them. As I said last week, the first thing you do is be grateful and thankful if you're a believer in Christ that God calls you chosen. Man, don't ever shy away from that. I wake up every day and thank God. I say, there but for the grace of God go, I thank you, God, that I'm chosen. Secondly, Uh, daily yield to him for his purpose in your life. Why? Because you are chosen. So make a choice to yield to him each moment of each day and, and, and give him the right of way in your life. And then thirdly, live both sides of the equation. Don't err on either side. Trust him fully and live and choose responsibly and you will be well on your way to becoming a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and even as Peter says, when there are difficult things to understand in your word that unstable people try to twist, that Lord, we can still make sense of these things and most importantly, live them out. Lord, I thank you for the idea of paradox, too, that there are certain things in life, and we all have them, that we might not be able to rationally understand. Some might even accuse us of a rational bind, but Lord, at the end, we know that both are true and we live them out. Lord, many times the nature of love even functions that way. And so, Father, I pray that as we wrestle with these things in our minds and hearts, you know, my real heart for each one here at Scottsdale Bible is not whether we um, fall on one side or the other in our ultimate conclusion, because we're a big church, we've got lots of space here, but that, Lord, what we would do no matter where we end up on all of this is that we would fully affirm your sovereignty and choice. And then we'd also never shy away from our responsibility and call to live good, wise, discerning lives as we follow your Son, Christ. Father, help us to be that. Unify us around your Word and your Son, Jesus Christ. God, thank you for your unshakable sovereignty in our lives. Thank you that you are the hound of heaven, hounding us until we finally come home to you. Continue to hound, we pray, in Jesus' holy and precious name. We all say together, Amen. amen. God bless you guys.